I say, okay, well, like you said, what are the facts or is that even happening? And I come back and I take a few deep breaths and something as simple as that, I feel like has helped me through stressful periods. Well, welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski, and I'm here with Dr. Netta Gould, a frequent flyer to the Faculty Factory Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you're going to want to check out Dr. Gould's prior episodes with us, number 61 and 62, because they were, they both launched or dropped around March 2020 when you know what happened. So uh, Dr. Netta Gould in her first um, episode talked about COVID tips about uncertainty and anxiety and uncertain times and uh, coping strategies. It was a really, really great, timely podcast to help us kind of bear up and um, get prepared for what was happening. And a couple of comments are quotes that I wrote down in my notes that might pique your interest to go back and look at episode numbers and listen to episode number 61 was Netta reminded us about facts. Don't add additional stories. Note the facts and drop the story, which I love. And she noted that also that maybe summer camps and summer events and summer programs were going to be closed but nature was still open. Mm -hmm. So the camps are closed, but nature was open. And so she reminded us to look for those opportunities uh, that still existed despite um, some things being taken from us, what was still available to us. And I love that. And then in episode 62, she actually did a guided meditation for us to help us cultivate awareness and self-care and being mindful of um, of what's, you know, what grounds us in keeping us centered because Dr. Netta Gould is the director of mindfulness program at Johns Hopkins. So Netta, why don't you start off by telling everybody your title and what you do, all the, all your roles here at Hopkins. Sure. Thanks so much, Kim. And um, for those refreshers, it's so nice to be here. And I can't believe it's been two years since you and I have chatted. Uh, so, so yeah, as my roles in, um, in, as a as the director of mindfulness, I basically spend a lot of time uh, running mindfulness based stress reduction group for um, patients on the one hand that are referred through the community and through different providers within Hopkins, and then for faculty and staff on the other hand. And so what that normally looks like, the MBSR program, mindfulness based stress reduction, is a um, internationally offered program. I happen to be certified in it and offer it here at Hopkins. And um, we meet for two and a half hours in person and then a full day silent retreat. So we meet for two and a half hours in person for eight weeks. And uh, since the pandemic hit, I've been running these courses virtually. And so I've truncated them a little bit because that's a long time to sit behind Zoom. But so I spent, I've spent a lot of my time doing um, these groups for in different ways and I've modified them. And then the other hat that I wear is as a cognitive behavioral therapist. So I see a lot of individuals with depression and anxiety. Again, sometimes those are patients provide uh, referred through internally or externally. And then sometimes those are um, faculty and staff with whom I meet. 
So, um, so, so yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's been a busy time. There's been a huge need for mental health services, but I've been happy that I've been able to continue despite some of the pandemic shifts. Mm -hmm. Well, we are very, very fortunate here in Hopkins to have you. And I was, I benefited from the MBSR course with you with a colleague of mine, and I found it really, really um, important. I still reflect on the practices. I still remember you and all you taught us and the the breathing exercises and just the the basic tenets of like releasing all judgment that has stuck with me. So the way you designed the course was really, I thought um, it was, it was a good reminder. And it wasn't one of these, I I sometimes feel like in the workshops and the courses we do at office of faculty development, they're so brief and short and you can only skirt the top. And so I liked how you would set up the course, as you said, in, in the length of time, with the same small group of people for several weeks. And then that's that month, that silent retreat day was, it seemed like a lot when I remember when I signed up for it. But then as I got into it, I realized how important that was to have all those components and how at the end of it, it, it buttoned it up nicely. And that's why I think it has this, this stick-to-itiveness that I feel mm-hmm. because it wasn't just a what was that whole thing about? It was consistent from materials, the, the exercises, the practices. Um, it, it stuck with me. So I, I, I highly recommend um, mindfulness exercises and practices. So mm-hmm. thank you for all you do for faculty here at Hopkins and for our patients and our staff. Uh, we need you. And it's so, you know, we're really blessed to have had you, especially when the pandemic hit. I know uh, you are on, you're really close, like hopefully a minute now you're going to be have promoted, been promoted to associate professor. So kudos in advance to that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, what, this is be, you know, your third time in the podcast and you've been through a lot in these past two years. I know you wanted to share some, maybe some personal experiences and thoughts and some lessons learned and then something along your career that you could share with mm-hmm. other faculty members um, sure. signals or things you're seeing that leaders might um, want to hear or need to be reminded about. So mm-hmm. let's take it away, Netta. Yeah, yeah. So I was um, thinking back to two years ago when we had the podcast. I remember exactly where I was sitting. The pandemic had had just hit. And um, I, uh, on behalf of kind of our department, was running mindfulness sessions for faculty and staff three times a day at eight o'clock and noon and five o'clock mm. and for 30 minutes. And, um, and I did that for, I don't know, a, a very, very long time. I just ended doing the 30 minute sessions. I had tapered down, but just ended after two years. But I remember sitting down in the basement and um, trying to find a quiet space with the kids trying to homeschool my husband working and, and, thinking, oh my gosh, like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. Uh, And so, so the mindfulness, I think, you know, I'd like to practice it more than I do even as a director of mindfulness, but really, I think helped me through this process in some ways, of course, things externally have improved like the with the pandemic getting better and, and people, the people returning to work, kids returning back to school, but the mindfulness, I think, on a personal level, 
is something I really keep going to. And I always share with people, I hope that you have your own self-care tools and that it doesn't have to be mindfulness and it doesn't have to be a, um, you know, eight week class where you meet for two and a half hours, but, you know, um, this can be integrated into the day. So I'll notice that I'll get really, when I get stressed out, I notice, well, I'm usually just thinking about something really stressful. And so I, um, I say, okay, well, like you said, what are the facts or is that even happening? And I come back and I take a few deep breaths and something as simple as that, I feel like has helped me through stressful periods through the pandemic and is a tool I would recommend. Yeah. You know, thank you for sharing that. And people have, you know, shared with us on this podcast, various self-care tools, exercise and hydration and sleep and and stretching and yoga and prayer and whatever, you know, works with you and you need, I, I discovered something new that I, through all, through the pandemic and being at home was, I've, I'm always, I'm an exercise buff and I'm a gym rat. So exercise has never been something that I feel like I must do. I'm, I have to do it because I love it so much. It's like when people say, Did, are you going to exercise? I mm-hmm. think it's like asking me, am I going to brush my teeth today? <laughs> it's a no brainer. <laughs> what, what I never really realized was how much during the day when I was in the traditional office, you know, 10 hours a day, and I just be motoring through the day and just go, 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 meeting, 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 meeting. And I would be sometimes, you know, power walking to the next building or five blocks down for that meeting or that presentation. It was constant go. What I've noticed now since I've been at home is I will have this disjointed work life. It's like, I was just reading something about just peaks of life. We do a lot of work. When you work at home, you kind of just integrate life with work. So I, when I have a period that it's empty for like an hour, hour and a half, I'll just get up, take the dog and go outside. Mm-hmm. And what I never used to do that, even when people would suggest, you know, get up from your office, your desk after every X number, every hour, 10 minutes, do this. And I'm like, I don't have time to do that. Or, you know, we, mm-hmm. we all just kind of eat, eat at your desk. And I never walked. First of all, I was wearing high heels and I didn't really want to get all sweaty. I'm like, I'm not going to walk at work. I walk now every day. And what I find doing is, oh, I get so many ideas mm-hmm. and these ahas come to me when I'm walking and I'm not purposely saying, okay, come on, doggo, let's start walking because I need to think of an idea about how to fix problem a or, or Z all of a sudden it just, my mind, those things kind of click. And I think it's the, maybe it's this thing called oxygen. I don't know what it is. (laughs) Physically moving my body and breathing. Yeah. And that has really, I feel like made me even more creative Mm -hmm. and, solve problems for me. So that is one of um, a a new self-care tool that I never recognized that the physical moving during the day versus sitting has really opened up my mind and um, Mm -hmm. things have fallen into place Mm -hmm. more easily than when I was back in the olden days. That's something that I've, I've, yeah. Yeah. I I, um, love that you said, said that, and I've had that experience myself and it's almost like, um, sometimes the best finding the best solutions to problems is to stop thinking about the problems and to completely shift 
your focus and getting outside, doing something new. It's like, you know, resetting ourselves. And, you know, I meet with a lot of faculty who are stressed and burnt out. And I think that there's, they don't feel permission to take breaks. And part of that is self-inflicted, especially in a place like Hopkins, where, you know, you go, 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 and it's never enough. And, and so you feel guilty if you stop. And it's the personalities of individuals who are attracted to this type of work and this type of environment. And that interplay can certainly lead to, lead to burnout. And, and I think, you know, I really try to encourage patients, you know, please take five minutes twice today, leave your desk, go do something, close your eyes, because this just isn't sustainable. And if the price you're going to pay is to leave or quit your profession or burn out, then can we spare 10 minutes over the course of the day? And I think that that's an important message for, um, for everybody, but also then for leaders to model that and to give that permission as well, because I think, you know, that's where we need to hear it come from that. um, Yeah. I want you guys to take a lunch break. Can you, can you do that um, once a week? And, and that permission I think is so important if people don't give it to themselves and for someone else to give it to them. Thank you, Netta, for reminding us and as leaders to model that behavior, because you're so right. It's one thing to say, you know, Take what you time you need. I trust you. You have the tools to do your job. You do your job whenever you want. Um, you have to take care of yourself. It's really important. You know, we value you. It's one thing to have all those words, words, words flopping out of your face. It's another thing to literally, as you're saying, model that. So mm-hmm. that kind of stamps of approval of like, well, no, he's not just saying that. He's actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, he goes to, he takes his kid to soccer practice or uh, she goes and gets a manicure once a month or, mm-hmm. um, you know, she goes and, and takes, a, you know, a gym class at 1030 to you know, 12. Right. So, and that's not on, on the down low. It's on the calendar. It's on her calendar or she, yeah. tells, well, no, I'd love to chat with you now, but I'm, I'm late for yoga. Um, right. It's the middle of the day. Yeah. And guess who will be on the emails tonight at nine o'clock PM. So that's right. what the different way of thinking about work that um, we are no longer, you know, punching the clock at you know nine to five. It's the work is so completely enmeshed in mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. because it is, and we're so available and make ourselves available because of our devices 24 seven, it's only fair then that we make our life life available 24 seven. Yeah. That we we've allowed yeah. to bleed in. We gotta have to also then you can't have the blood, here's the the, the scientist, the, the physicians, clinicians can be like, wait, you can't have the blood going one way, actually. Can this is, <laughs> no, it has to go both ways. If we're gonna let work bleed into mm-hmm. life, we have to allow life to bleed into work. So yeah, love right. that you brought, called that out. Thank you, Netta. Yeah. And, you know, it, it made me think like, here's our novel idea. Could the leader even go out to lunch with some of these individuals to really kind of model that in vivo? And, you know, I, I think to my, um, to the elementary schools where I am, that they have this idea called a lunch bunch that you, um, you earn a lunch basically with a teacher of your choice and the kids just love that. And I, you know, and it, I think it, 
you know, why we can learn so much from the children, right? <laughs> that they take these breaks. Um, I The other thing that came to mind as, as um, we were talking about this was also one thing I'm trying to really do or I've tried to do over the past couple of years is to set some boundaries. And, and I've been doing that by learning how to say no, I didn't realize how challenging that was for me and that my instinct, as soon as I get an email with a request is to say, sure. And one, it's easier than to say no. Um, and, you know, um, everyone's happy in the moment. And then I started realizing, oh my gosh, look at my calendar. And, you know, I can't be a good clinician or, um, you know, a, a mother or a, a, a wife, if I'm so burnt out and, and is anyone at the end of the day going to notice if I see one less patient and spend, you know, that time catching up on notes, so I'm not doing it at midnight. So I think that learning to say no is such, it's, it's something I really continually have to practice, but it's so important. Well, that is another great point. And I'm glad you brought that up. So let's, let's kind of get into that because it just so, it seems so simple, like so many things, take a walk, get mm-hmm. some sleep, <laughs> go to lunch. It, it, these things seem so easy and yet we struggle with them. And I tell people all the time, we've had uh, episodes on the podcast, you know, no is a complete sentence. And when you start, if you don't say no to in some things, you're going to start saying no to very important things because you can't say yes to important things if you're saying yes to everything. So I all the other mm-hmm. like little quippy sayings, but how let's break this down. Let's walk somebody out there through it who's saying, like you just said, I'm not going to be perceived as a team player. I'm trying to get promoted. I'm the junior person on this team. I don't have the right to say no. Um, I'm trying to build a career here. What if I never get this opportunity again? People will be mad at me. All these things, these mm-hmm. stories and facts, mm-hmm. as you talked about last time, that we think we make assumptions about what will happen when we say no. Can you give us a scenario or two of the, you know, you work with faculty? How does, how do we do, how do we actually do it? How do we practice? Yeah, yeah I can tell you how I've been practicing in it. And I think it is a skill. I think some people are better at it than others. And it feels uncomfortable, just like whenever we, we learn some new skills, but that it gets easier. And so I can give you an example. So I get a lot of requests to see patients. They come from everywhere. And normally I do whatever I can. Even sometimes I have to see them on weekends since we've gone virtually to, to say yes. And um, I what I've started to say is, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. I've noticed that I can't provide the care that I'd like to with, you know, if I take this on or be the X person or the X researcher that I'd like to, if I add this to my plate right now, so I can't, I can't do this. And so I think that it's softer and kinder and truthful. And, um, and so it, the person, I think, on the other end can understand. But then I always provide other resources. So, hey, or another person's name who they could reach out to and check and say, I don't know their availability, but you might want to check with X, Y, and Z. And so then there's a plan of action and it feels better on my end. Um, and I feel like I'm still being helpful. Got it. Got it. That's good. That's good. When we're dealing with the fact, the, the guilt, like you said, because we enter this profession 
as givers and servers and we want to make a difference. And so it, it's unnatural for us to say mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. our whole lives we've been trained to and enjoy the challenges. Mm-hmm. But you're right. That kind of is this mission centric. And what we do, as you know, in the Office of Faculty Development through our leadership programs and all of our various seminars and workshops and coaching and mentoring sessions, we try to always um, remind each other to be mindful of what is your mission and is this mission centric? And do you have a mentor? And can you buy some time and space to say, thank you for this opportunity? Let me think about it. I'm going to run this by, you know, Dr. Netta Gould, my mentor, and I'll be back mm-hmm. with you by close of Friday or by mm-hmm. noon on Thursday. I'll let you know. And that at least gives some emotional distance from do I really want to do this? Is this aligned with my mission? Is it important? Do I have the time and resources to do this? And as you said, Netta, and rightly so, do the job I want to do because we're all perfectionists. So yeah, I could do it, but am I going to bring my A game, my B game, or my Mm -hmm. C game? And how will I feel about that? So I think I love how you said, um, you know, buying some time, but then maybe saying, I I can't in good conscience, this will not be my best effort at this moment in time, maybe later, or how about this person, that person? So at least the person's not going, oh, she just, she said no. And just said no, complete sentence, period. And then <laughs> you're fine. that was rude. Right. A softer, as you nicely mm-hmm. said, softer, thank you, no. And how about this person? So they, you're giving them options. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's a really good strategy. What happens? What do you see happening um, when, it, when it goes wrong? When faculty say, I'm, I'm going to do that, or how do they mess up the no? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it could be something like, no, I can't do that now, but check in with me later. And then they check in with them later. And, but the answer really, you really wanted it to be a no, but you know, you gave them an out. And so the the person on the other end doesn't understand, you know, they don't know. They're just reading what's there. How else does it go awry? I'll have to think of some personal. I I love, I love that. Check back later. We said check back later. Yeah, but I didn't really mean it. How are you doing? I didn't really want to hear all the details of your latest gastro Sometimes the challenge becomes on the other end when you when you know I'll say no to something, but then the person may come back and say, um, "Okay, I understand you can't do that. Could you do this?" Mm. And sometimes that's fine and it, it works but sometimes it's like no I I, I can't do that either <laughs> and so yeah it's still required you're missing the point maybe the point also maybe yeah. the point is the the no that we craft um has to be direct and instead of implying mm-hmm. um that mm-hmm. I'm busy simply saying I literally have no space on my calendar for the next you know 15 16 weeks Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe this month that will free up, or no, I don't have resources to do that. Well, how about that? No, I don't have resources to do that either. Let me be clear. I have no resources. So <laughs> I think your point, um, what I'm hearing is that we have to be clear in our communications and not assuming, making assumptions that people will read between the lines or read our minds, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and being, as you said, being setting boundaries 
and um, being firm, being firm, Mm -hmm. respectful, but firm. Right, exactly. So, you know, what you describe is assertive communication. And that too is a skill that we have to learn. Some people are just naturally more assertive than others, but, you know, we may begin to notice some patterns of communication. Are we passive? Are we passive aggressive? Are we aggressive? Um, You know, um, can we aspire to be assertive where we're clear and concise and we're respectful in, in, um, the way we convey our message, but we're also respectful of our own needs and and where we are and um, what boundaries we're setting, and, and that requires practice. Netta, um, help help me um, or help us think through when we are saying no to a boss, like in high. Mm-hmm. So now I'm reflecting yeah. on a personal experience where one of my mentors, high up higher up in the dean chain than I am, um, said, "Hey." Kim, I want you to, this, there's this initiative and this project, da, 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 da. and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, really, I, I'm, I'm kind of swamped right now doing A, B, and C. This actually, but it, this sounds like it's more appropriate. This should go to person, person Z, not me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then she replied back, yeah, but I like working with you. You know, you get things mm-hmm. done and I really hope you reconsider this. And I'm like, it, to me, it was kind of like, a, yeah, but um, it's really, it's going to create some problems. Can't you imagine? Because this person, that is what they do. And there might be, and it was kind of this back and forth, back and forth. And then it was like, well, she, I could tell she was disappointed. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of brings me back to the, the feeling of guilt, but then thinking I'm not responsible for other people's feelings, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, putting your psychologist hat on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. You can't predict how other people will feel, especially in the context of um, if you're being kind and respectful. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I shared this last time, but one thing I always share in my uh, talks, a slide I always share in my talks is um, something I picked up at a silent retreat once. There's a great meditation teacher and her name was Mary Aubrey. And she shared this acronym of can you make your speech King Tut, which was the K stand, stood for kind. Um, the ING doesn't stand for anything. And then Tut, um, truthful, useful, and timely. So, um, you know, I bring that to mind. So can your speech be kind, truthful, useful, and timely? And if it is, then uh, um, yeah, you're not intentionally trying to, you know, hurt the other person or, or make them feel bad and you can't control how they feel. I think it it um, adds another dynamic when that person is your superior. And, and that's happened to me. And most of the time I had never said no, except when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm losing my mind. I can't take on one more thing. And so I did as, as I did the same thing um, as you had mentioned that I kind of was clear and concise and said, you know, I'd really like to help out. Is it is, is there a possibility to find a diff, to explore a different alternative here? Because I'm feeling really overburdened. Here are some people I work with who may be interested in the project that may be a better fit. Um, and the person took it fine and said, sure, let's find a, a, a different option. And I had to sit with all of those thoughts and stories. And that's what I, from on a personal level, that's what I had to get comfortable. Oh, they're mad at me. They think I'm not a team player. I, you know, I should be able to do this. I should be able to add one more thing. It would feel so good to be able to say yes. And I had to say, yep, all of those things are true. And if I want to not burn out and leave this institution, then I'm going to say no to this one little thing. And I love Netta that you say, 
that word should. Every time I hear the word should, I'm starting to bristle more and more and more. And I, and I tend to, when I coach, I remind people, are you saying should? And is someone telling you should? And that to me is always a, it's a trigger word because people, you know what you should do? Mm-hmm. And I always think, oh, please do tell me what I should do. And I, I kind of get defensive because to me, that implies I'm not doing something I should be doing. And that I'm, mm-hmm. I get very defensive about the word should, and I should myself. Right. All should. I should have 200 publications. I should have ones. <laughs> I should right. 20 pounds. I should eat vegetables. I should. And, and all that shoulding of ourselves yeah. is so heavy. And so they should and mentors and colleagues and peers and reviewers say should, I kind of, I feel like we have to be really careful about what that means and what their motivation is. And I'm not saying all shoulds are bad. Yeah. Maybe I should Mm -hmm. stop drinking. Maybe I should stop. (laughs) Maybe I should stop being, being a bad guy and stabby and I'm being all, should be stop being all stabby. So um, yeah. And also be careful of, do I really? That's kind of making an assumption. And I think the other on behalf of, or playing, putting myself in the role of my leaders and people who are getting told no is maybe in all fairness, they don't know. They think you want to do this because mm-hmm. they're all like, oh, I'd love to, happy to help mm-hmm. you. Absolutely. Sure. Count me in. I'm a team player. Our enthusiasm, our innate curiosity and because we're all scientists and we want to know and learn and help and be a value that can be sometimes mistakenly construed as not only is she good at it will she produce for me but Netta wants to do this stuff Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that miscommunication or we're thinking well why does she or he keep asking me to do this wow what a jerk um and they may be thinking well, i'm giving that an opportunity to do this stuff i thought right. she wanted to do this she's so good at it she likes it and in fact no i i'm done with that mm-hmm. i don't like it i was doing it as a whatever whatever so that gets back to as you you know mentioned honest authentic communication and testing our assumptions that we have mm-hmm. That's so true. And yeah, as psychologists, as you were saying that, we have a saying that I'm shooting all over myself. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. I, I'm yeah. all over myself. Yeah. So, um, and it's so true. And just yesterday I was meeting with a, a faculty member and um, and the comment was, I, I, I said, you know, you know, what were you thinking? And she's, what were you thinking when this happened? And she said, um, I just thinking I should be able to do this. And I said, well, how does it make you feel when you think like that? She says, well, I feel horrible about myself. And so even taking that, when you start catching those shoulds and saying to yourself, well, what's a, a different way that I could talk to myself and say, it would be nice if I took this on, but right now I don't feel like I can, you know, it, just that one word and, and shifting, you know, that, that sentence and reframing it can make us not feel so horrible. And that's kind of the premise behind cognitive behavioral therapy is that our thoughts impact our, how we feel. And so if we can make some, some um, changes in our, it, begin to catch our thinking, first of all, and what's helpful and what's not helpful. And then to just make slight changes, even that can impact our mood. Oh, I love it, Netta. That's so, so, so good. I love the, I'm shooting all over myself. <laughs> and the king tut, kind, truthful, useful, timely, king tut. 
Such great reminders. Yeah, I use the King Tut when I'm I feel triggered and like I get an email that doesn't seem nice or, or someone says something that makes me feel irritated, then I just pause and I say, is what I'm gonna say King Tut? And often the answer is no in those moments. And so then I don't send the email or I step away and I'll say, you know, let's talk about this later. And that has really saved me from some very, I think what would have turned into some very challenging discussion. It's funny. I'm laughing because you reminded me of from my Bible study time. We had, is it kind, is it necessary? And is it true regarding gospel? Mm. Mm. So mm-hmm. about, is it kind, necessary, true? And you have in King Tut, kind, truthful, useful, timely. And I'm yeah. thinking, when I looked at kind, necessary, true, it's necessary and it's the truth. And you're useful, <laughs> it's useful and it's timely. But guess what? In both of those, it's not kind. It's not that it gets me every time. Why does kindness have to be in there? Because I'm like, but she needs to hear that. That is true. Yeah. It's necessary yeah. And it is useful. But, but you know, th- three out of four isn't bad. <laughs> Oh, oh wow! Well, Ned, what, what anything? Any other like little pearls or a um, piece of wisdom that you can drop out there in addition to all this wonderful stuff? Or just yeah, for us? yeah. You know, I, I, a lot of people ask me this question: like, how do I make time for the mindfulness practices and insert in the mindfulness practices any self? You know, instead of mindfulness practices, any self care tools and and you know, going back to this idea of you know. I know who I am and then I know well the people at Hopkins and the culture here and saying, I I just don't have time. Um, And, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One, that self-care doesn't have to be an an hour of meditation or an hour at the gym that, that, you know, literally look for one minute to start. And that's one minute more of kind of being able to reset and, um, you know, decompress. And then the next week, can you build it up to two minutes? You know, if you need to start that small, that's perfectly fine. Um, And then the other thing I say to myself is I say, well, if I'm not going to do this for myself, um, because I feel too guilty, then can I do it for the people I love in my life? Can I, can I do this so that I'm less irritable? I'm going to, you know, not snap and, and uh, express my frustration. I have more tolerance when I'm with kids, with the kids be more present. And so those two things have helped me. And then to, and then the third thing is um, just, you know, can I find any kindness towards myself? That's so, like you said, it's one of those things where it's like, well, duh, be nice to yourself. But, um, but it's so hard to do um, that we're so incredibly self-critical. And can, can we say, can I say one nice thing to, to myself today or forgive myself for, for one thing? And, um, and I think that, you know, that, that can be helpful. And, and the reason I, I love working with, with faculty so much, especially at Hopkins, is because I can relate so much to the experiences and to this experience of being like, you know, self-critical and, um, and saying, I don't have any time to do this. And, and just having had to learn ways to work around that, um, both as a prof- as a psychologist, uh, professionally, but then also just personally to improve my quality of life. Oh, man, no, 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 no. so beautiful. And I, the two things that came into my mind was how you, um, I try to think of like, 
we've, we've all heard before. Think of, would you tell your best friend, if you heard, if your best friend were talking mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. would you allow him or her to say that? Or would you say like, what are you doing? Like mm-hmm. you'd be kind and loving and supportive and forgiving of that person. So treat yourself like you treat a best friend. Why are we so horrible and awful to ourselves? And then you reminded me, I recently had my uh, annual physical exam with my Dr. Mary Newman, my wonderful um, GP. And as we're leaving, she's like, Kim, love your body. And I turned around mm-hmm. looking at her like, mm-hmm. my, I had the crunchy look. I said, love my body. <laughs> Just love your body. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, but I hate my body. And it mm-hmm. really kind of like smacked me in the face of, and obviously it stuck with me because I don't remember anything else she told me, but I, Kim, love your body. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that we don't do is we don't love ourselves because we're so hypercritical and it's yeah. never good enough. We're never doing enough. And so hence the shooting all over ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful thing for a physician to say, not something you, you often hear them say, but what a nice thing. And, and, and so true that, you know, we are our worst critics and um, so unforgiving of ourselves. And I think that's where gratitude practice can also be helpful is to say, yeah, okay, well, maybe I, I wish that, you know, I did this or looked like this, but then we can say, well, what am I grateful for? And we forget the things that, you know, um, often in psychologists, in, in the psychology world, we talk about this negativity bias, that the brain is going to focus on the negative. If you look amazing, you're going to find that one teeny tiny flaw. And we have to override that. And we can override it with a positive self-talk. We can override it with mindfulness practices where we get some distance from those um, experiences and we can override it with gratitude practices of, oh, well, wow, like I can still walk or run or look how amazingly I cut these onions and my fingers work so well, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the situation is. Yes. And it, it takes a minute admit it. Like you mm-hmm. said, it doesn't take mm-hmm. hours of, I don't have time to do that. Really? You're, you're the time it takes you to breathe in and breathe out. Mm-hmm. Inhale, exhale, mm-hmm. boom. Um, yeah. That doesn't take a lot. And it doesn't take a lot to just, when you, we find ourselves engaged in that negativity, the self, the negative self-talk is that just a little bit of a boing, a rubber band snap on your wrist, you know, old school remind yourself, no, 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 that's not, that's not how mm-hmm. I, I do not speak to myself that way. I'm mm-hmm. not tolerate that kind of thinking about myself. So yeah, exactly. And the last thing I'll say that is is for for me the mindfulness practices were perhaps the like single most transformative concept that helped me embrace all of these things. And so for somebody else, it might be something else, but if, you know, the, the listeners have an opportunity to explore some of the mindfulness courses, I think that it's, it can be really powerful, a simple construct and really challenging to do, but can be immensely um, powerful and empowering. Amen, sister. You (laughs) so right. I totally agree with you. Dr. Netta Gould, it's been another wonderful episode with you. Thank you so much for your time. I'm grateful for you, as I know the audience is. Um, and this has been a wonderful, wonderful um, episode. If you want to be in the Faculty Factory podcast, just shoot us an email at facultyfactorykim at gmail. Thank you, Dr. Gould. Thank you so much and so wonderful to chat with you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.